Welcome to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast, where we help nonprofits reimagine generosity and put the joy back in fundraising. Hear from leading nonprofit fundraisers and marketers as they reveal strategies for strengthening donor relationships to propel your nonprofit forward. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Virtuous Podcast. I'm Gabe Cooper. Uh, so excited today to have Dave Rayley with us. Dave is a longtime friend. Um, he's Executive Vice President of Strategy and Innovation. I hope I got that right at Masterworks, which is uh, one of our favorite agencies to work with in Poulsbow, Washington. So, Dave, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so before we get into some of the tactical stuff, give us a little background on uh, Masterworks, what you guys do, and then kind of how you ended up at Masterworks and, and in generosity in general. Sure. Masterworks has been around for probably about 30 years. I've been there for about 15, so I've got about half the, uh, half the tenure under my belt. But uh, essentially, we're an agency, and we exist to uh, – one of the things we talk about it and – and that I feel like is really my own personal life call is this idea of inspiring generosity. So I love the fact that you, you said that. And um, that's essentially what we exist to do. The, the longer phrase we talk about is inspiring the time, the giving of time, talent, treasure to things that delight the heart of God. And so we're very passionate about helping uh, ministries, nonprofits uh, grow. And we've done that through a lot of fundraising, a lot of marketing and strategy, analytics, those sorts of things over the years. So it's been a blessing and it's been just a core part, um, just a really cool matchup with who I feel like I'm created to be and what I'm called to do. And, uh, and it's also what Masterworks does. So it's been a good, it's been a good match. That's great. That's, that's awesome. Um, you've, you guys work with a lot of uh, big orgs, um, not, not exclusively, but generally the, you guys do a little bit larger. And I know a lot of the orgs that you work with and it's some of the most cutting edge fundraisers out there doing some really innovative stuff, um, leading change in a lot of areas. What are, as you kind of look at the, the VP of advancement role or fundraising role or marketing role at the orgs you work with, what are the qualities of those most innovative leaders? Like what do you see working time and time again and kind of what marks those great leaders? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I thought about this, you know, I've, like I said, I've been doing this particular gig at Masterworks for about 15 years. And uh, I realized a couple of years ago that um, between my own experience and the, the other folks at the, at the agency, we probably work with every, you know, significant nonprofit in the country. Um, you know, personally, I think I've worked with over 50. And so I did, um, I did actually a little poll internally and, and talked to the team and I just you know, asked them, what, what have you seen, you know, when it comes to really highly effective um, leaders of development. And there's a old, long version would be there's seven, but I'll just give you a couple of the highlights. Um, number one, um, and this is, uh, I think, seems very simplistic, but it's just core across every leader that I've ever run into. And that's that they find out what works and they do more of that. You know, I think that when I see particularly younger leaders, of which I am one, um, you see folks that that get kind of in their ivory tower and feel like, all right, we have to have a diversified portfolio. We've got to do, you know, this, that, and the other. And they're talking, you know, a lot of their conversations philosophical and what we should do or what the market should do. And and one of the things I've just seen time and time again with really effective uh, nonprofit fundraisers is they figure out what works and they say, well, how can we double down on that? 
And how can we double down on that again? And um, they they become really intensely, almost myopic, you know, like it's, they're so focused on what works and it's like, they get these blinders on in a good way and, uh, and just continue to double down. Um, so that's one. Another one that, um, really has stood out to me is that they, um, I, the way I say it is they leverage natural assets. So every organization has things that are really their own core strengths and they might be in their history. They might be their founder. It might be their geographic location or who they know or, you know, influence on Capitol Hill. And yet the nonprofit fundraisers that I see that don't do well tend to just spend their time being envious of others organizations. Well, you know, we don't have a really dynamic leader. You know, my, my, my CEO isn't a fundraiser. And so, you know, if I had that CEO like at that other organization, I could really do something. And they spend all their time fretting about others and other organizations and the history that they don't have or the, the natural assets in my term, my words, that they don't have, that they, they fail to look at their own organizations. I mean, particularly you mentioned some of the bigger ones. We work with some organizations that have tremendous outreach and broadcast and, and they're, they're in front of millions of people. But they many times don't even think about that as, oh, gee, we have access to millions of people. Maybe we could use that in our marketing and fundraising communications. And so the, the, the really wise nonprofit fundraisers uh, leverage those natural assets. And I guess the, uh, if I had to pick a third, and this has been the most important to me, and, and I, I heard an interview by a gal who is actually – moving over to head up all the marketing at Coca-Cola a couple of years ago. And she was moving actually from an agency to, to Coca-Cola. And so I was reading an interview with her and the, the interviewer asked her this kind of softball question, you know, what, what are the biggest challenges you fa are going to face as, in this new role leading all the marketing at Coca-Cola? And she said something that really struck me and I realized I think applies to everything that we do. She said, oh, I think the challenges that I face are the same challenger, challenges that every marketer faces. And that is, I have to maintain the present and optimize the present while inventing the future. Mm. And I thought about that, man, manage the present and invent the future. It's not an either or proposition. It's not something that you can, you can do one at the expense of the other. And the best nonprofit fundraisers that I see out there are, are ones that really hold those intention. Everybody errs on one side or the other. Like nobody's the perfect, I do both really well, mm -hmm. but the ones that I see do really really well understand that those two things are critical and don't let one sort of uh, die at the, at the behest of the other. And so they focus on managing the present and inventing the future. Mm. That's great. And it's so hard. I mean, it's finding the kind of leader that can, that can do that, that can strike that balance is uh, I've, I've seen, I guess in the last 16 or however many years I've been doing this, it's, it's a little bit of a unicorn. I mean, it takes a really special person to be able to do both well and sit on that fence. Well, and you know, one of the other things on my list is just the leads with humility, because like I said, most, I mean, reality is if I think of all the nonprofit, the chief development officers that I've worked with, uh, maybe less than a handful actually do well at both, but the ones that have done really well that don't have both, have the humility to recognize, you know, I'm all about risk-taking and innovation. I couldn't care less about managing the present or vice versa. I'm all about optimizing, getting that 5% growth, but I just don't get, you know, excited about the yeah. big risk-taking innovation and they surround themselves with people 
or their agency or, you know, um, that, that can help push them in, in the areas that they need pushing. So. Yeah, that's great. That humility and self-awareness to know where, where your flat spot is, is huge. Yeah. Um, well, hey, you and I have talked a lot about innovation over the years. I feel like every time I bump into you, it's, it's a, it's a topic. It's what you're concerned about, obviously what we're concerned about. Um, and we've both talked a little bit about how we wish people would, um, would innovate faster. I've heard you in particular use this word stagnate and that sometimes innovation stagnates a little bit at nonprofits. Speak to that a little bit. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that and what you've seen. Yeah. You know, I think that keeping, I, I would say building an innovation culture and keeping an innovation culture are two separate, very, very difficult tasks. Yeah. And one of the things, if you step back and look at the last, uh, probably six or seven decades of nonprofits existence, you had a whole uh, class of nonprofits, honestly founded in the same decade, that are really the kind of bit behemoths today, the organizations that are really large. And if you look at, if you study the history of nonprofits, you'll find that in many ways, the 1980s and 90s were kind of a golden age of nonprofits as far as if you look at growth and fundraising goes. And so you had tremendous amounts of innovation going on, tremendous growth going on, really use leveraging the strategies of the day, you know, I, I, with last year being the anniversary of the Reformation, you know, you think about Martin Luther and using the printing press, like, oh, good idea, Martin, why don't you print stuff and hand it out? But if you think about, obviously, his day, that was a wildly foreign concept, like, what do you mean, you know, this is something that no one did before. Well, if you look back at the 80s and 90s, nonprofits were doing some pretty incredible things. In fact, ahead of the commercial market in many ways. I mean, Steve Woodworth and our president here at Masterworks was doing things with long-term value and analytics and calculations that weren't even coming up in the commercial sector, you know, a decade before it came up in the commercial sector. And you look at the growth rates that nonprofits had at large and as an industry, and you mostly saw double-digit growth. I mean, it was pretty easy easy hindsight 2020 right to grow uh 20 or more 10 percent or more but if you look at nonprofits today there are nonprofits that are growing and are innovating and doing really really great things but if you step back and look at the industry at a macro level you're not seeing the same kind of innovation you're not seeing the same kind of growth at all i mean many nonprofits are just happy to stay flat you know it's like hey we were flat this year, you know, and despite these down, down trends, you know, we're, we're so, you know, so happy we could stay flat. I go, man, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that's not very exciting. It's not very encouraging. Um, and if you feel called to the work that you're doing, it's, it's more than discouraging, you know, it's, it, it prevents us from doing our mission. So we do feel, I do feel like the, the nonprofit industry at large, and I feel like Masterworks and, and my personal call is to help create uh, innovation and and what would it look like to create a renaissance of, of nonprofits in the 21st century 2020 and beyond yeah so what does that look like I mean what how, how do we think about that because I love the idea of sort of kickstarting a renaissance and in innovation right like reclaiming that the 80s and 90s growth period and that's obviously going to look completely different in 2018 but but what do you kind of do to, to spark or kickstart that well, it's, I mean, it's my day job, you know, so I spend pretty much every day on that topic. So 
a couple things. Um, well, the short version is I don't know the answer. Um, again, in, in hindsight, you know, I might we might look back at 2018 and be like, you know, we were on to something, you know, but it's really hard in the moment to, to know. All I know is the nonprofit industry at large is not growing and innovating like it needs to. Yeah. So for us, there's a couple things. Um, uh, one is just this idea, and, I, and I'm sure you guys have talked about it on previous podcasts, but this idea of experience. And, you know, as marketers, as fundraisers, especially, we fall into the category of direct response. You know, yeah. you send a direct mail piece out or you do a television ad or you do a social media ad and it's an ask and, you know, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Right. That's the way it works. And I'm not knocking it. Like it's what's yeah. made organizations grow and you need it. You have to, you know, it's a biblical principle to ask. Um, but one of the things we realized, um, I mean, honestly, starting about 10 years ago, was that the role of things like brand, things like content strategy, uh, things like what we call UI, UX, just you know, really great design, were more than just aesthetic um, things. You know, of the oh brand, yeah, right. You know, the logo is you know which font should we use on the logo? It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the experience that individuals, human beings, have with causes. And so we threw ourselves a couple of years ago and have continued to double down into this concept of experience design. So just let me explain it really, really quickly. We think of the combination of brand content strategy. So brand, who the organization is, what their vision is, what's remarkable about them, content strategy, uh, the digital experience, which is massively important today. And then how the overall experience physical and digital for um, donors in particular when you're talking about fundraising how those coalesce to actually create people who are passionate about causes um, more and more if you as you go down the generations you realize that um, even from boomers on down the, the loyalty and and giving is not what it used to be and so what it comes down to for us is creating experiences so that's a major thing um, technology is a major thing in terms of creating a renaissance uh, I mean, we're right in the middle of a very interesting time with um, with Mark Zuckerberg going to, uh, you know, D.C. And, and the European Union to talk about privacy and data. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going, this is a necessary to get to the, you know, sort of it's, it's sort of governmental and regulatory sort of catch up on what's been happening with technology and data. We're not. But in fact, if anything, nonprofits should lead the way um, in integrity and, and data privacy and all those sorts of things. But there is a massive amount of stuff that we can be doing with data to find the right people that might be interested in a cause, put a, put a message in front of them and, and uh, move them towards, towards action. So there's, there's a lot, but for us, technology, experience, design, um, and uh, just thinking about those two things in particular are pretty, pretty massive for us. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I mean, so much of, of what we think about resonates with that. And, and a lot of it, honestly, if you look at sort of design thinking or human centered design out of like Stanford or IDEO, how people think about customers and, and sort of getting in the DNA of nonprofits to help them think about their donors that way to sort of actually think about things as a donor's perspective. So instead of thinking them about them like a checkbook, you know, think about how they feel and experience and asking those hard questions and, and asking them why and what makes them tick and then tailoring messages around that and thinking about giving to their donors before their donors give to them in that way. And it's, 
that concept is actually pretty foreign. It's amazing and it moves the needle tremendously, but it ends up being foreign. Well, I remember, I remember when I was in college, I was a marketing major and I remember reading in my integrated marketing communications textbook about uh, multi-channel communications and, and um, uh, uh, one-to-one, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's been the language for, you know, I guess that makes at least 20 years. So that's been the, yeah. oh, that's been the holy grail one-to-one. And, and I do believe in that, but technology today, the things that we can do with algorithmic, you know, AI essentially. So just going to give you an example, we, we developed a, an AI a couple of years ago that we've used and rolled out on virtually every organization we work with that helps us to decide who to communicate, which messages to. Mm-hmm. And so um, back when I started at Masterworks 15 years ago, that was a, back then it was a manual process. And by manual, I mean, I had a spreadsheet and I like picked <laughs> cells with yeah. numbers in them. And I said, send this communication to that person, send this communication to that, to that group, not that yeah. person. Yeah. And, um, and before that, before, you know, and some people listening to this podcast may have done that on paper, um, <laughs> but it was very manual. And, and a few years ago, we developed an algorithm that we now use with, with all of our clients. And that algorithm goes person to person and it looks at all of their, you know, transactional history, but it also looks at other things like topic, uh, age, um, you know, a number of different factors. And we've consistently found that that thing, just implementing that AI to make the decisions on whom should receive the communication, um, has usually resulted in anywhere from a 15 to 20% like immediate lift. And that's because you're actually communicating yeah. on a more individual basis and making that decision rather than on a big group. Like, okay, should these 2000 people get this message? I, I think so. You know, it's going through all 2000 of those people scoring every one of them and then making the decision on which one of them gets communication. That's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It's cool. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Obviously that's something close to my heart. So, um, give us a little bit more just because I want to get down to the, sort of ground level uh, in the weeds around moving to more of a more donor experience type thinking. So yeah. if, if I want to move from thinking about my donors as transactions and checkbooks, and I want to move to giving them an experience of what it means to be part of what I'm doing and to sort of feel that, like what, what, what are my first steps, right? Like what, if, like that's a big, it feels like a big jump, but kind of where, how do I start down that road? 100% the first thing that I would do is actually experience your organization as an outsider. Um, every organization we work for, I mean, my, my work at Masterworks, I mean, I'm, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I think I know what the experience of the organization is, nonprofit XYZ. You think you know what the experience is. But those of you that have been in this business for a while realize that the reality on the ground is probably not as awesome as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the number one thing that, that I would do is to actually do, I mean, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, donor experience audit. Um, it's something that we do for the organizations that we work with or prospects where it's, it's you, you literally come in as an outsider and it's hard for insiders to do it. So you might, you know, might have a, you know, a board member, or, you know, somebody that's outside. Well, board members are a little probably too vested, but, um, but somebody that's an outsider that can give you just candid raw feedback and it's classic secret shopper stuff like give a donation or sign up for the email list, give a donation track and then track everything. And we've done this now for a number of organizations and you get two things 
number one, the, and most importantly, you get this step back experience of like, oh, that's what our experience <laughs> is. That's not even what I thought it was, let yeah. alone what I want it to be. Yeah. Um, and it's very visceral too. If you want leadership to make a change, you, sh you show them something like this. This is, you know, I gave a gift and, you know, the number of times we've done that and, you know, there was, there was a thank you and then no future communication, right? Cause somebody, you know, the data didn't get somewhere where it needed to be, you know, that kind of stuff. But the other thing is you start to realize these really big, um, either gaps or opportunities in the experience. We had an organization we did this for a couple of years ago, and it's a, it was largely based around an, an annual event. And they had this, you know, tremendous buildup recruitment, you know, six to nine month recruitment process, and, you know, pumping you out for the event. And then obviously a process to make sure you actually did the event and, and all that sort of stuff. And we, we stepped back into this audit. And one of the things we saw was, oh, my goodness, within like two days after the event, we go stone silent on this audience for, you know, three months until we're asking them again, you know, until we're recruiting them again and we're yeah. sort of in transactional mode. And it's like, yeah. what if we actually supported them and encouraged them and yeah. followed up and provided valuable resources? Like that might actually help our relationship. Mm. And then from a business perspective, help them do the thing again and be more passionate about and maybe refer some other people. Yeah. But unless you step back and actually look at that total experience and do the sort of, secret shopper plus the analytics to say this is where people are dropping off so on and so mm -hmm. forth you just don't know and you don't know what you're missing yeah uh yeah i love that it's huge i mean it's, it's good advice for businesses any organization but i think in particular nonprofits and in particular that that very first donor experience i mean the the thing that we harp on all the time the stat varies a little bit but something like 75 percent of people that give a first gift never go on to give again and often it's a very, very correctable thing. And, and often it comes down to just like, just be a secret shopper and see what your person feels. I mean, see what you would feel like if you, you know, if you went to this big thing, your heart got wrapped around, around the cause, you give a gift and nobody talks to you for 60 days and then they hit you up for some arbitrary amount of money and talk about all institutional stuff. Like, you know, just, just go through that and see. And it's like, no wonder most of them don't give again. And I would say, just to add on to that, once you identify some things, you know, most organizations, I, you know, when you said don't talk to them for 60 days, which we've seen, I've also seen organizations really worried about how much they talk to mm -hmm. their organizations, particularly larger ones with multiple departments that want to yeah. chance at the new name or the new, the new, the new donor sort of a thing. Yeah. And I would just recommend no matter what your insights are out of that process, mm -hmm. test it. I mean, I yeah. um, just do a split test because, and, and don't do like, unless you're a really large organization, a multivariate 22 panel thing, like yeah. literally test A or test B. And because we've seen things that are very intuitive, like, mm -hmm. of course we should call all new donors. Let's do that. And a lot of organizations were proud about that. I'd yeah. say, well, did you test it? Because mm -hmm. we've, we've found with some organizations that calling new donors within 60 days of, of their um, coming out of the file actually suppresses long-term value. Yeah. And you're like, well, wait a second. I thought I was just being really nice. What if it was just a thank you call? Well, I don't know. Test it. You know? Yeah. So. No, that's great. I love that. Um, okay. So incredibly helpful. Uh, I don't want to suck up your whole day here. And we usually have a lightning round. We typically do at the end. So just to get some quick insights, I know hopefully um, 
some of the nonprofits we have are going to listen to this and really be inspired to sort of push through the envelope in terms of innovation. And so, I, I mean, just amazing insights. But let's finish on this. I'm just going to throw a couple of quick questions at you. Um, you can kind of give me a couple sentence answers and uh, interested to say. All right. Uh, so first one is um, book, most impactful book you've read in the last year or so. If it hadn't been a year, then you, you can go back a little further. But Oh, yeah. You know, I would say because it, and because it dovetails really with our conversation today, um, Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. Mm. Um, highly recommend. Um, if you can, if you're an audiobook person, definitely do that. I read, I quote unquote read the audiobook before I got the real thing because I, I was so moved by it. And when I got the real thing, I realized this is the thickest book I've read in years. It's an intimidating uh -huh. read as far as length, but honestly, um, really, really good. Thomas Friedman wrote, you know, the world is flat and a number of other really good books, but he's, he's essentially a, anthropologist and he connects why technology and a number of other things are all accelerating and what we need to do about it. So I don't agree with everything he says in the book, but it's really challenging and our entire senior team has read it. Highly recommended. That's great. Um, uh, podcasts, Netflix, you have any favorite shows there? I know Friedman actually has a podcast, I believe, or world is flat has a podcast. So I don't know if that's on your list, but you have any yeah, you know, my the it's just a I've just been uh, sort of been binging this one. It's called Work Life. Um, I'll have to look up the the name of the gentleman who does it. But Work Life, it's a TED podcast. But the the gentleman who does the podcast is just really um, engaged. And uh, Adam Grant is his name. And uh, Adam Grant Work Life, and it's just thirty-minute podcasts, and they're just always really, you know, challenging into leadership or your own, you know, cult organizational culture, things like that. So I'd recommend that. That's great. And then uh, finally, I know you're trying to be a dad, work really hard, you're traveling all over the place. You got any personal habits that kind of keep you sane, keep you um, grounded? A couple of years ago, I went to a, a younger leaders gathering. There was about a thousand young leaders um, from 150 different countries around the world, which is a wow. pretty crazy experience. But the most important thing, I think, was that there were 400 mentor leaders, hmm. um, folks that have gone before. And the constant theme to me was creating sustainable rhythms. Um, and uh, it was a Christian conference. And so the term that I came up with out of it was this idea of living a life liturgy, like what are my daily, weekly, annual rhythms? And that's only been relatively new to me in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. It's not a tradition that I grew up in. And so for me, I have a daily rhythm, a weekly rhythm, and, an, and a yearly rhythm that are just help keep me grounded. I you know, pray the same prayer every morning. I, um, you know, have the same kind of action list. And so that's been the biggest thing for me is just creating this. This is my rhythm. You know, it's, it's not all about, especially when you're heading up innovation, you know, it can feel tempting to be like, everything's got, every day has to be different and every day in reality is different. And so if you don't have rhythms, um, it can be hard to stay sane. Yeah, that's great. There's, if you haven't seen it yet, there's James K. A. Smith has a book on kind of the liturgy of life and, and the rhythms of life that would, if you're into that, you would love it. It's, it's sort of creating the habits that, that form the heart and how they, they have way more impact on who you are than, you know, what we give them credit for. Very cool. I'll check it out. Um, 
Well, I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Man, what a pleasure to get to hang out and hear your insights. Uh, and you got to come back again and do this soon. Yeah, love it. And just enjoyed, you know, I think we've known each other probably more than a decade now. So glad you're doing the podcast and happy to be, be on it. All right. Thanks, Dave. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser. The podcast is brought to you by Virtuous the CRM and marketing automation software helping charities raise more money and create more good. Be sure to rate and subscribe. For more resources, head to virtuouscrm.com.